Sorrowfully, as regards domestic abuse, the sea has indeed gotten into the ship. Author Justin Holcomb shares this sobering portrayal of abuse in a typical local church. He says if a church has 400 members, about 160 are adult women, 160 adult men with 20 teenage boys and 20 teenage girls, 40 of these women would experience physical violence in their lifetime. 20 would be currently experiencing physical abuse. 80 are experiencing verbal and emotional abuse, some kind of humiliation and degradation from a spouse or boyfriend. 200 of those members would have witnessed abuse in their home or in their spouse's home. Would that the church got some kind of exemption from this great sin and the sorrows it causes. That seems to be far from the case. Nor is it the case here at North Wake. This sin has played out and is playing out in far too many lives with devastating consequences, even here in our church family. This is a great sorrow to all involved, including, and perhaps especially, our gentle and lowly Savior, King Jesus. This morning, I want you to hear from some of our frontline leaders who are actively ministering both to victims and perpetrators of this great sin as we seek to make Northwake a place of refuge and rescue. So this morning, Sam Williams, one of our elders and a counseling professor at Southeastern Seminary, will be sharing God's heart on this matter from the scriptures. Sam's wife, Mindy, who helps lead our women's ministry and has counseled many women who have suffered abuse, will be sharing a testimony of what she has heard and learned from these women and the hope Jesus offers to all victims of abuse. Then Craig Morissette, who directs our Hope Counseling Center that offers Christ-centered counseling to our community of Wake Forest and the surrounding area, will be offering perspective and hope from the teaching of Jesus for those who have become ensnared in the sin of oppression and abuse. And then Carson Cobb, another of our pastors, will wrap things up for us. Some of you need to hear this teaching this morning, right now, in your own life and your own home. You are here today so that you can hear this teaching. This is by the kindness and merciful working of our good Heavenly Father. Please hear me. There is hope for you. Others of you need to hear this because of friends or family who are suffering this sorrow. And honestly, most all of us will need to hear this teaching sooner or later so we can offer the hope and care of Christ to someone God will one day place in our paths who have suffered or become ensnared in this sin. So this morning, let's open our hearts and minds to the teaching and testimonies from our leaders as we pray together. So if you'd bow with me, I'll start with Psalm 10, verse 17 and 18. O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed, so that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. Lord, this is your heart, to care for those who suffer abuse, who are oppressed. We pray this morning for mercy upon us at Northway Church that we would bear your heart to those who are suffering in this matter, as well as those who are ensnared in this terrible sin. Lord, help us rescue, help us restore, help us make safe spaces, help us lead people by your mercy to repentance. Lord, do all that you need to do to make us a city set on a hill and a light on a stand in our community concerning this important matter. 
Lord, have mercy on us now. Give us ears to hear. Jesus, we pray this in your great name. Amen. Good morning. Uh, I would like to refocus us, if you want to open your Bible or your phone or look up on the screen, on chapter 4 of the Gospel of Luke that Daniel read a portion to us a little earlier. So Luke 4, starting with verse 14. So Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit and news about him spread through the whole countryside. And he was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. So he went to Nazareth, where he'd been brought up, and on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me. Because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind and to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That's why he came. And then he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. This morning, I'd like to fasten our eyes on what God has to say about oppression and violence. I want to remind us, these are not culture words, these are Bible words. And that's why we want to look at God's word this morning. God has good news for those who are oppressed. And his ultimate goal is to free them from it not just for them to learn to put up with it. This is obvious from this passage and some others that we'll look at in the Bible this morning. So our focus this morning is on oppression, as Larry said, particularly as it occurs in families and even more in marriages. The national statistics on domestic violence are alarming. One in four women and one in seven men report having experienced domestic abuse in their lifetime. And these figures are probably underestimates because this is probably underreported. It's not easy to collect statistics or for people to speak up about abuse. Now, the more common terms that most of you are aware of is domestic violence. Uh, another term uh, is spousal battering or more recently, intimate partner violence. So I thought maybe this morning a good starting place is, let's just look at those phrases. Domestic violence, really? Violence is anything but domestic. And spouse or intimate, how did those words ever have to sit next to words like violence or battering? or abuse. God help us. Why do these phrases even exist? Um, The family should be the safest place on earth. 
The church should be the safest place on earth. And marriage is supposed to be a place that is safe and sweet and kind and where a man and a woman can serve and love one another in such a way that the other person grows and flourishes and is blessed as a result of the way we treat one another in our marriages. It's a place where we walk out the love of Jesus for sinners. So, of course, there is a kind of suffering that takes place in any marriage, and my wife can surely testify to that to any of you that would ask her. But Chris Mulls writes, A theology of suffering, without considering God's responses to violence and oppression, can lead to some dangerous advice. A theology of suffering, without considering God's responses to violence and oppression, can lead to dangerous advice. So yes, sometimes marriage is hard, and of course suffering is a part of the Christian life, marriage included. And of course, a biblical understanding of suffering is necessary for marriage, or really any relationship between two sinners. It should come as no surprise to those of you that know me and have put up with me for so many years that being married to Sam Williams entails some suffering. Uh, It is truly only because of Jesus that I could ever be called a saint. So I I have hurt Mindy's feelings, and I have wronged her in a variety of ways. And I hate it when I do. You see, it's one thing for me to hurt Mindy's feelings, and I have. It's quite another thing for me to want to hurt her or to try to pay her back for some way that she let me down, and by God's grace, I've never wanted that. I detest hurting Mindy. It's one of the worst things I've ever felt is when, I've, when I have hurt Mindy's feelings. It's also one thing for me to want Mindy to do certain things and not other things. I want her to do motorcycles with me. She won't. I, I want her to, 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 to do steak with me, and she won't. Uh, but it's quite another thing for me to want her to do or do not, not do something. It's quite another thing for me to coerce or manipulate or threaten or try to control her so I get what I want. Whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. That's wrong. John Calvin, John Calvin helps us here, and he says the evil in our desires often lies not so much in what we want, but in that we want it so much. So you see, oppression and abuse grow out of a self-centered, idolatrous heart, sometimes even for good things like respect or sex or a clean house. Oppressive people make marriage a place characterized by domination, meanness, malice, intimidation, and fear. So this morning we are not talking about garden variety marital struggles, which every honest married 
person would confess. Who hasn't been selfish or impatient or unkind? Most of us married folk are in a marriage that has its characteristic struggles and conflicts and sins, and yet we shouldn't presume, we should not presume that all marriage problems are garden variety problems. Even our legal system differentiates between a misdemeanor and a felony. Even though breaking any law is a crime, all crimes are not equal. We recognize, for instance, that there's a difference between going 10 miles over the speed limit and strangling somebody. Both are against the law, but both are treated, but they're treated very differently. All marriages are made of two sinners, but there are different types of sins in marriage. And they're not all equally destructive, nor are they equally toxic. So our goal today is that you walk away from here with a better capacity. We want to increase your capacity to discern. We want to raise your awareness and raise your discernment. Our goal is that you walk away being able to differentiate between marital misdemeanors and marital felonies. Now, uh, there are many stories in the Bible where we see violence and abuse, oppressors and victims. Once again, these are biblical categories. These are not categories of culture or wokeness or any of that stuff. These are, this is the Bible that's talking to us, my dear friends. And how could it not be in the Bible since the Bible is not just a, a compil compilation of spiritual platitudes, but instead the Bible is about real life. It's about God and us and how he thinks about us and views us and judges us and helps us if we will get down on our knees and move toward him. So, um, because of the fact that the Bible is about reality, uh, and because of the fact that we are sinners, and because this reality that we occupy is also occupied by sinners, some sinners are oppressors. And if some are oppressors, then unfortunately, some will be victims. Thankfully, Scripture gives us a realistic and authoritative perspective. God's view and God's attitude toward the sinful abuse of authority, the sinful abuse of power, which sometimes takes the form of physical violence, but also comes in a variety of other destructive variants. Consider, for example, verbal abuse. Think about the potency or toxicity of words and how the Bible talks about the potency of words. So, Proverbs 18, death and life are in the power of the tongue. And rash words are like sword thrusts. And James describes the tongue as a restless evil full of deadly poison. Psalm 9 and 10 are 3,000-year-old poems about God's heart for victims and God's heart against oppressors. 
The Lord is a refuge for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. For he who avenges blood remembers. He doesn't ignore the cries of the afflicted. So, so you, God, see the trouble of the afflicted. You consider their grief and take it in hand. Victims commit themselves to you. You are the helper of the fatherless. So break the arm of the wicked man, Lord. Call the evildoer to account for his wickedness that wouldn't otherwise be found out. You see, the Lord is king forever and ever, and even nations will perish from his land. So we see that in Scripture, God validates, God hears, God tunes into the plight of the oppressed, and he links oppression with help and accountability and with rescue and protection, and so should we. Another example would be the book of Exodus. You guys know that story. God tells Moses what he thinks and what he aims to do through Moses about the Egyptian oppression of his people. So the Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I've heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I'm concerned about their suffering. So I've come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up and out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. So now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now, go, Moses. Go, church. I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. So the Bible's clear, isn't it? God sees and hears and hates violence and will deal with those who dispense it. In God's word, we are commanded, his people are commanded to correct oppression, it says in Isaiah, and to deliver the oppressed from the hand of the oppressor, it says in Jeremiah. So at North Wake, we are committed to reflecting God's heart for the oppressed and protecting and restoring those who are oppressed or abused. Jesus referred to the way the Gentile kings oppressed them and abused those under their leadership. But he told his disciples, this should not be so among you. So Christ-like headship and leadership involves love displayed through sacrificial service. Attitudes and actions that are oppressive or abusive are representations not of sacrificial service, but rather of arrogance, misplaced authority, misuse of power, and attempts to bring about subjugation of another person. Well, um, let me shift gears just a little bit here with you. Uh, defining abuse uh, is not an easy task. Okay? It's, <laughs> it's, it's, it, it is not simple. Um, but I want to offer some descriptions of abuse 
definitions in a way uh, by Jeremy Pierre, who is a friend of mine, a counseling professor at Southern Seminary, and Greg Wilson, a licensed counselor in Dallas. So abuse is about the misuse of power to control or manipulate another for selfish gain. An outfit named Emerge defines domestic violence as any act that causes the victim to do something that she doesn't want to do or prevents her from doing something she does want to do or causes her to be afraid. The goal of abuse is self-gratification, to get what one wants at the expense of another. Abuse can involve physical, emotional, verbal, sexual, economic, spiritual, or psychological means. It is, perhaps most importantly, the desecration of the Imago Dei, the desecration of the very image of God in another human being, and is therefore, in a very important way, an assault upon God himself. So let me summarize here. Um, oppression, domestic abuse, domestic violence, violate, first, the will of God. Paul, in speaking to husbands, says, love your wives and never treat them harshly. Never treat Mindy harshly, Sam. Never. These sins also violate the heart of Christ, who describes himself in Matthew 11 as gentle and humble in heart, and who has a yoke, but it's easy, and his burden is light. And who also, being in very nature God, didn't consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant. And finally, domestic abuse desecrates the image of God. James chapter 3, with the tongue, we praise our Lord and Father, and yet with it we curse human beings who've been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth comes both praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this shouldn't be. Now, most of you would take offense um, if you saw someone burning the red, white, and blue, the star-spangled banner. Because to you, that flag is more than a colored, rectangular piece of cloth. You'd say, no, don't do that. That, that represents something even greater and more important. It's not just a piece of cloth. We should be even more offended and repulsed when God's image bearers are not loved and not taken care of as they should be. To disrespect a person made in the image and likeness of God 
disrespects God because that person is like him. And it's far worse than desecrating a flag. So it makes perfect sense when Paul says to husbands, never treat them harshly, never. And that James says to those who abuse others with their words, my brothers and sisters, this shouldn't be. So so this morning, if God's at work on you, if oppression describes you, the Bible says that God opposes you. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So draw near to God, the Bible says, and God will draw near to you. I would also encourage you to meditate on Psalm 32 and Psalm 51 twice a day for the next week. These are some of the most profound passages in the Bible where God's word speaks and facilitates repentance. Confess your sins to God if this describes you. But don't stop there. Confess your sins to one another, the Bible says, so that you might be healed. So I exhort you also to talk with one of the leaders here at North Wake soon, this week. If victim describes you, we want to know, we want to understand, we want you to be safe, and we will do whatever we can do to collaborate with you, to protect and to provide for you. God be with us. Domestic abuse expert Chris Moles says that medical schools train their students. If you hear hoofbeats, think horses. But you have to know that zebras exist. You mostly are surrounded by horses, normal marriages. However, you have to have a category for zebras for abusive marriages where there really is a bigger center. I want you to hear me. Our goal for today, for all of you here, is not to see abuse everywhere you look. Our goal today is not to create an environment at North Wake where someone shares something at small group and everyone stands up and shouts, A zebra! We got a zebra! You're being abused. That is not the goal. To label all marital conflict and all sinful husbands as abusive will not help the women who are truly in oppressive marriages. My introduction to understanding the zebras of abusive marriages did not start with a dramatic story. It began with an incident involving laundry. 
I was speaking with a lady who had come to see me, and, and she wanted me to help her be a better wife. And uh, one of the times we were meeting, she mentioned she was really tired. And I said, well, why are you so tired? Oh, I stayed up really late last night. Well, why did you stay up so late? Well, my husband put a load of laundry in right when I was going to bed. Well, why are you so tired? Well, because I had to put it uh, into the dryer from the washing. Well, why couldn't it sit in the dryer over? I mean, the washer overnight. Oh, no, no, my husband doesn't like that. Well, if your husband doesn't like it, then he can put it in the dryer. Oh, no, no, he wants me to do that. Well, you tell him no. Oh, I can't do that. I have to submit to him. That, that's not submission. And so my education began. See, every marriage, every marriage has incidents of selfishness and thoughtlessness and misunderstandings and hurt feelings, right? But the story she began to share with me did not sound normal. There, there seemed to be a kind of meanness, a kind of intentional selfishness. And uh, it took a long time for her to come to a place a realization that things weren't right. And then as she began to grow in her understanding and she trusted me with more of her details, I mean, the darker stories came out of how her husband had physically and sexually and verbally and emotionally abused her for over 20 years. See, one thing led to another and I began to get more and more referrals of women who were in oppressive marriages. And I want to share with you some snippets of their stories. Uh, the woman who wasn't allowed to go to the bathroom during the night because her husband said it disturbed his sleep. And so she learned how to ration her liquids during the day. The woman whose husband locked her in a car on a regular basis if they were out shopping and he got mad. The punching of holes in the wall. Kicking furniture across the room. Driving recklessly, intentionally to scare her. Threatening to hurt the family dog if he got angry. The iron-fisted control of finances. The husbands who would not let their wives go to sleep at night, but would continue to yell at them in order to make them stay awake. The woman who could only shower if her husband was out of the house, otherwise he would force her to have sex. The wife who would only wear what her husband picked out for her. The husband who would wake his wife up in the middle of the night to do random chores. The husband who would become angry and follow his wife from room to room, screaming at her and blocking doors so she couldn't leave. The husband who was extremely passive and gave his wife the silent treatment for weeks. The wife who dropped a heavy object on her foot by mistake and her husband laughed at her and didn't help her even as she was bleeding and had to get herself to the doctor for stitches. The husbands who feel entitled to their wives' bodies to grope, grab, demand sex, whatever, didn't matter if she was sick, running a fever, exhausted, or just had a baby. And I heard this from lots of women, hear this from lots of women. Their husbands demanded sex, and the wife is faced with the choice. Say no, and then have him take out his anger on her and the kids for days, and make home life miserable, 
or say sex just to keep him from throwing a tantrum and being mean. Uh, even as a kid, I never liked the story of Alice in Wonderland. I didn't like it when she was down the rabbit hole. Nothing made rational sense. And that's one of the ways I see oppressive marriages. The normal rules of relationship and communication do not apply. See, a normal marriage, conflict can be messy and the process of figuring it out can take time. Uh, but talking about issues can, can help. But, but in abusive marriages, to bring something up, it doesn't help. Well, yes, last night was terrible, but today he's being all friendly. Why would I bring up what happened last night? It never goes well. He'll gonna, he's going to get mad, and then today is ruined, and I'm going to suffer for it. When I was a little kid, we did not have iPads. Okay? We had a piece of cardboard, and it had a black bottom, and then it had two pieces of plastic, and you drew on it with a little red stick. Anybody? Right? And then you lifted up the top piece of plastic, and it, poof, blank slate. It's an awesome kid toy. But a process like that is destructive in a marriage relationship. And this can be so frustrating. A wife finally gets her husband to meet with someone to help them, and she tries to bring things up in order to deal with them. And she's the one that's being told, uh-uh, you're keeping a record of wrongs. Uh, you have to forgive or you're going to be bitter. Our team at North Wake, we are committed to trying to understand what's gone on in this particular marriage so we can effectively help. Craig is going to talk about the care for men. And for our women, we want to create space and counseling and time for them to do the hard work of processing and healing. Time alone does not heal, but healing takes time. So what does this mean for you? What do you need to do? Here's my answer. On the one hand, you don't need to do anything. Like I said earlier, our goal for you to, is not to leave here and see abuse in every interaction, in every conversation. That is not the goal. But here is what we hope you will do. Simply be aware of the existence of zebras. When someone shares something that they are going through in their marriage, listen. Do not superimpose your experience onto theirs. 
I had a friend who used to ask for prayer because her husband was under a lot of stress. Well, I know what it's like to have a husband who's under stress. Sam gets stressed. I thought my experience was her experience. When Sam gets stressed, we hang out together, we talk about it, I pray for him. But when her husband got stressed, he acted violently and terrorized her family. I never asked, what's it like for you? I just assumed a horse. Her marriage was like my marriage. If someone opens up to you and says, my husband has a problem with pornography, and you have gone through that, don't assume her husband is like yours and give them some quick advice. See, your husband was repentant. Your husband felt conviction. Your husband would never hurt you. But her husband isn't like your husband. He isn't repentant. He feels entitled to do whatever he wants to her, and he has hurt her repeatedly when they are together. This is a zebra. When someone says, my husband has a problem with pornography, ask her, what's that like for you? Ask her, how has that impacted you? How does that make you feel? Listen. And listen some more. See, Jesus meant for his family to be the safest place for his daughters. The best place. The best place to deal strongly and mercifully with abusers. The best place for community and healing and love and fellowship and encouragement and practical help. A place where the oppressed are lifted up and out of darkness. A place where God's true word is taught to the broken and the suffering as all of us grow up together in Christ. Ephesians 4.13 said, Christ makes the whole body fit together perfectly as each part does its own special work. It helps the other parts grow so that the whole body is healthy and growing and full of love for God's greatest glory and our greatest joy. In the short moments I have, I'd like us to consider one example of oppression and look closely at one of Christ's responses to it. Earlier this year, we studied the book of Daniel together. There we read of the wickedness of an earthly king, King Nebuchadnezzar. 
and how he worshipped himself. In King Nebuchadnezzar, we were provided a picture of what it looks like when a person misuses power fueled by pride and entitlement. We learned how this king stripped people of their humanity and attempted to remake their identity. We noticed how he made urgent demands and treated others as servants. We observed how he used his power and authority to cause fear and how he used that fear to achieve the outcomes he desired. We read details of how his face would change with rage when he was defied. We could imagine how those around him tiptoed very carefully in his presence so as to not disrupt the fake peace with the king because true peace felt impossible. The things I just referenced were not singular instances isolated to one bad day, not that it would be permissible even if it was. No, for King Nebuchadnezzar, this was the characterization of his reign. It was a pattern of relating, a pattern of leading, an ingrained belief of entitlement that informed all of his interactions. But the Lord intervened and did not leave this earthly king in his blindness and distorted perception. Instead, the true king, the God of heaven and earth, pursues Nebuchadnezzar and shows him mercy by bringing consequences, by holding him accountable, by providing him correction. And by God's grace, it brought humility. We see the fruit of God's gracious correction when we read in Daniel chapter 4, penned by Nebuchadnezzar's very own hand. Verse 37 reads, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he, he is able to humble. Folks, this is true hope. Let me be clear. Marriage is not a kingdom. However, in many marriages experiencing domestic abuse, there is one who sinfully views themselves as a king and their spouse as their servant. Let's consider this morning one of Christ's responses to this kind of leadership, this misuse of power and control from Matthew 20, verses 20 through 28. Here, the mother of James and John wants something very specific from Jesus when she says, Say that these two sons of mine are to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. Now, she knows that in kingdoms, there is always a hierarchy. She knows there is a king and that the next most powerful persons in his kingdom sit on his right and on his left. She wants her sons to have power in Christ's coming kingdom. So Jesus gathers all of his disciples around him to hear his response to her request. I pray that we too will consider his next words 
very carefully. Look at verses 25 to 28. Jesus says, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus is saying that his disciples cannot lead by using their power and authority to subjugate those under them, but rather his disciples must humbly serve those they lead. The way for a follower of Christ is not me over you, but rather you before me. This means that for Christ's disciples, authority doesn't look demeaning, degrading, domineering, or dismissive. It doesn't create an atmosphere of fear or constant tension. These behaviors have to be abandoned out of obedience and submission to Christ. Christ is telling us that we must never lead out of a posture that is power over, pressing down upon a person, crushing them under the weight of demand and expectation, but rather from a posture that is power under, building up, supporting, using your strength to encourage, to expand another's gifts and abilities to flourish in the world. Today, I have shown us two kings, one who led using power over, and another, the truer king, Christ himself, who led from the position of power under. One brought rage and destruction. The other brought peace and life. One positions himself as more important than others. The other considers others more important than himself. One brought fear. The other casts out fear with perfect love. One is impatient, demanding, and dismissive. The other is gentle, quick to listen, and doesn't insist on his own way. Which king do you imitate? Lastly, no one before you today will claim to understand all the nuances and complexities that can involve all oppression. As a church, we are at the beginning of understanding these things. This is an ongoing conversation. No one here has it all figured out. But we want to say we care. We know this is real. We identify it as sin and its impacts as devastating. If you find yourself exerting power over others as a pattern of relating or as one experiencing the oppression from the misuse of power and control as a church, we want to offer help or work to connect you with those who can help. 
May God be glorified by our response to the teaching from our King. So in closing today, I just want to offer a quick explanation and then also a brief invitation. Invitation, uh, By way of explanation, some of you may be wondering why we are addressing this topic uh, in our service today. And of course, the short answer to that is that we feel compelled to. Uh, we're not trying to add our church's name to a hashtag or surf today's cultural currents, although it is true that cultural movements like the Me Too movement or the Civil Rights Movement often do provide the church an opportunity to take a hard look at itself and how they are dealing with these issues. Uh, the reason that we're speaking out on this um, is also not just because October is Domestic Violence Awareness Month, though it is, but because more and more we are finding ourselves dealing with real-life domestic abuse cases in our community. And we found that the church's at-large track record of dealing with these kinds of cases has sadly often been unhelpful um, to those who are abused and even at times endangered them all the more. So we're speaking about this not primarily as a generic cultural issue, but as a real street-level problem. And we're also, we want to speak on this because we value marriage and we want our church's marriages to function as God intended as a symbolic representation of the love between Christ and his church. And as Craig said, we all have a lot to learn in how to best deal with these complex situations. And as Mindy said, we're not here to try to swing the pendulum in the complete opposite direction and start calling everything bad abuse or start any sort of abuse witch hunt. We simply want to say that abuse is wrong and we want to help as best we can. So then by way of invitation, if you find yourself, as Craig said, or someone um, you love in a relationship in which you are concerned about their mistreatment, please uh, contact one of us uh, who you've seen up here today in the way that feels safest to you. You can find our email on our church's website. We'll be up here today. Uh, several of us work in the office. You could stop by sometime and see us. We want to help you, or as Craig mentioned, put you in touch with someone who could help you better. Uh, we want to be to you the family of God who can come alongside you and help you find safety and sanity once again. And to reiterate what Craig said, if you are someone who finds themselves ensnared by the sin of oppression or violence towards another, maybe even those closest to you, we want you to know that God hates this sin. And so he longs to free you from it and to protect those around you from it. This type of sin will destroy you inside and out, and so our church's leaders want to help for you and protect those around you. And if you will humbly receive correction and help, there is mercy for you. As Proverbs 28 says, he who confesses and forsakes his sins will obtain mercy, but whoever hardens his heart will fall into disaster. The gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ Bearing our sin is not a message that excuses us to sin, but rather excises sin or cuts it out from us. The gospel message comes along with a new heart, a heart of love. And if God has placed that within you, you will long to be free from this. And if you would like to be free and do not know this type of love of God that frees you from your sin, then you can today. 
So let's pray together. God of compassion, God of justice, and God of grace, uh, we, we humbly ask for your mercy. And you see the oppression that many live under. And you see the sin that so many live in. And you are moved by that to act on their behalf. So God, by your spirit, would you help us to love what you love? Grant us the compassion of Christ and help us to act as you would have us to act. Would you grant us the courage of Christ? So Father of mercy, have mercy upon us, your people. Amen.